Hey, before we jump into the podcast, just want to give a quick reminder, if you're new here to the Holistic Nootropics podcast, to please just take a quick second and subscribe to the podcast. It takes literally a second to do. Just hit the subscribe button right there in your podcast player. Also, if you want to help us out, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Now, if you're more of a visual person, you like to actually watch the podcast, you can actually do that over on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. Just go to youtube.com, search Holistic Nootropics. You'll see our page pop up. Subscribe to that. Hit the little bell icon so you can get notified every single time new videos drop because we don't just do podcasts over there. We do product reviews. We do all kinds of nootropic and biohacking and holistic health topical videos. So go on over, check us out on the Holistic Nootropics YouTube page. And for all things nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking related, go on over to holisticnootropics.com. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. You're listening to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, your home for holistic, evidence-based cognitive enhancement strategies. And now your host, Eric Levi. Hey, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Nootropics Podcast, where we discuss using nootropics, nutrition, and biohacking to help you hack the power of your brain. My name's Eric, I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, and today on the podcast, I have Dr. Greg Nye. Dr. Greg is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who graduated from NUNM in 2001. Dr. Nye is the co-owner of Immersion Health in Portland, Oregon, where he has a primary care practice as well as a specialty in naturopathic oncology. He has done extensive research, writing, and speaking on the relationship between dysfunctional sulfur metabolism and the development of SIBO, inflammatory diseases, cancer, and other chronic conditions. He is also the author of the book, The Devil in the Garlic, which is available on Amazon. Now, Dr. Nye and I had a very fascinating conversation. I'm telling you, like, I'm on this kick right now about just just debunking every healthy diet on the planet to the point where you're just gonna look at your cabinet, I'm, you're gonna be like, I don't know what to eat anymore. Because so many foods that are considered healthy are very high in sulfur. So this is like the cruciferous vegetables, eggs, even protein um, can be considered high sulfur. And it's not that Dr. Nye is trying to tell you to not eat these things, but some of us have these sulfur metabolism problems. And this could be a, a real indicator of some serious health issues because sulfur is the main component in your natural detoxification process. It actually makes these very specific compounds in your body you need for your body to function properly. And a lot of people just aren't metabolizing sulfur correctly. So me and Dr. Nye talk all about this real fascinating topic. I know you're gonna love this podcast. Now, just a quick reminder, if you are new to the podcast, please just take a moment to sub subscribe, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, go on over to the YouTube page, search Holistic Nootropics, join our YouTube page, and if you're digging what we're doing here, you can go on over to holisticnootropics.com, join our email list, get on our, uh, our newsletter, get all the deals when we get them, get all the news when we put it out, and you know, your life is just exponentially better. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. So, Dr. Nye, welcome to the Holistic Nootropics Podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm psyched about it. Yeah. So, let's start off the bat with the controversy stuff. What do you got against garlic? <laughs> well, other than that it's evil, um, no, it, the, the title obviously was a just to grab some attention. Garlic is awesome if you don't have a problem with garlic. Uh, it, and it just so happens, which I never would have suspected until I got into all this, that you know, different sulfur coming into the body comes in in various forms, the way it gets packaged into various foods. And it has now revealed itself that garlic is by far and away the most reactive of the foods for the people who have sulfur problems. So, you know, for the people who don't have sulfur problems, no, eat garlic. I didn't, I'm fine with garlic personally. I can eat a boatload of garlic and it's not an issue. But there are some people that if they get a whisper of garlic, they'll their headache comes back or their neck pain comes back or their you know, dermatitis comes back or whatever. Um, so garlic is just sort of emblematic of this, you know, this hidden thing going on in foods that people are so tuned into, which are these sulfur compounds that can have a pretty substantial impact on the way people feel. 
That's so wild. It's so wild because, you know, I've been into this thing since I've been doing this podcast about not really debunking, but like exploring the ideas that these healthy foods or foods that we've been led to believe are healthy and good for us actually have a lot of problems or could be problematic for certain people. And so that's why I came across you because you're talking about sulfur. And, you know, to someone like me, you know, I'm in the paleo, I'm in the keto, I've done the vegan, I've done the plant-based, you know, and then I've done like some of these gut protocols and it was always like garlic, garlic's cool. Garlic's part of the program. Eat some garlic before you eat it, fires up your digestive juices, you know, you, you use it as a garnish on all these different foods. And then you jump into the sulfur thing and all of these healthy foods like broccoli and kale and Brussels yeah. sprouts and all, all my favorite veggies there, they got garlic in them. And then, um, so it was interesting because now you coming along and going, Oh, wait, there is actually a problem with some of these foods. So how did you, how did you come across this, you know, in, in your practice or, or, or in, in the way that you see things? Yeah. You know, um, I, so I'm geeky. I just, I love reading just research and like, that's just kind of my thing. Um, and so it, this was about probably, probably about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I was working with Maria, the nutrition therapist that she and I are collaborating all the time. And, you know, it's, it was interesting when I went back and looked at some email, one of an initial, an initial trigger was I, I had read an article by this researcher at MIT, Stephanie Seneff, who had written an article about something else that I was blown away by. And I have this thing when I read really cool articles, I just set, I send emails and say, that was a really cool article. Um, and that initiated a conversation with Stephanie that has now developed into, you know, we'll talk more about that later, maybe. But um, uh, so, and Stephanie was also writing a lot about sulfur. But what is interesting, when I went back, I thought that it was that conversation and reading Stephanie's research about sulfur that had initiated my sulfur journey. But when I went back and looked at emails and and when Stephanie and I first made contact, actually Maria and I had made our initial plunge into a low sulfur diet with patients prior to my having that interaction with Stephanie. So I had somehow, and I'm not sure exactly how, gotten tuned into it before and we had started utilizing it and then when I started then once I got in contact with Stephanie and really started diving into it in a big way that was a big motivation to really develop it even more into a much more kind of sophisticated system and say oh there's something really significant going on here and the way it's played itself out clinically over the years has been like one of those like sort of crazy revelation things. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, <clears throat> talk a little bit about um, like without getting too much into the weeds of like the chemistry and the biochemistry of sulfur, like on a real basic level, what does sulfur do in your body? And, and like, what is it? Cause I know it has something to do with detox and I know it, you know, it, it's, it's obviously necessary biologically, but, but what, what is, where does the problem with it come in? Yeah. So let's see. Um, so sulfur, dietary sulfur comes in, in many different forms and ultimately it has to get kind of processed either by gut bugs or by various enzymes that are built into our digestive lining or in the liver, or wherever it has to get processed into some very specific compounds that the body needs. So sulfate, for example, SO4, that is our body has to have constant access to sulfate because all of our connective tissue is densely sulfated. All of our linings, the mucous membranes, all sulfated, hormones, all the steroid hormones and others are sulfated. You've got to attach sulfates to them. So that's got to be going on constantly, which means, and we're not eating sulfate, we have to make sulfate. So all of the enzymatic machinery has to be in place to get that to happen. So if something messes that system up for generating sulfate, 
then first of all, it's going to be symptomatic because you got to have sulfate. And second, your body's going to have to figure out a way to get the sulfate. Like you can't not have sulfate. So, and I, um, you know, this is just kind of a wacky theory that I have, but it totally plays itself out clinically. And that is that a kind of a brilliant way that our body manages to get the sulfate that it needs is to overgrow these bacteria in our gut that will, they don't make sulfate, but they make the compounds that can then get turned into sulfate. And so the problem, it solves a problem and it's a very big problem, which is we got to get to sulfate. The bummer is that the compounds that it generates, hydrogen sulfide and sulfite are symptomatic. They make us not feel well, but from the body's point of view, that's a small price to pay to get the gold, which is sulfate. Wow. So what you're saying then is certain people have a sulfate deficiency. So we need sulfate SO4 and some, some people can't make that right. So the body as a, a way of adapting to that builds these colonies of gut bacteria that make hydrogen sulfide as a way to make sulfite sulfate, but it's the hydrogen sulfide that causes the problems. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Really the symptomatic aspect of sulfur problems is I believe the excess of hydrogen sulfide right. and sulfite to some extent. I mean, really they're, they're kind of, in a lot of ways they're going hand in hand. Um, but yes. And I don't really, except in really rare situations, people don't come into the world with a sulfate, metabolism issue. That's something that we develop over time. And it really is, it is the product of, of living in the modern world that just, it kind of, things compound and it's such that, you know, exposure to heavy metals, for example, can clog the system in various ways or exposure to glyphosate. You know, I got a whole chapter in the book about how glyphosate does about 30 different things to mess up sulfur metabolism and we're mm. all exposed to glyphosate. Um, there, there can be genetic issues that will interfere with the process that all of these things can stack on top of each other. Um, you know, some people don't have a problem with, with sulfur. It's not an issue. It's not their thing. And there are a decent number of people who come to me and they, you know, they've heard a podcast or read something I've written who want to go through the process and we put them through the protocol and I put them on whatever seems to make sense in terms of the nutrients to offer them, you know, their particular situation, the best support. And at the end of the protocol, they, nothing has changed. They feel the same in whatever way that they're feeling, which is just to say, all right, check the box. Wasn't sulfur. It was something else. You got to move on. It's just that often when people have, you know, kind of the, that picture of the sulfur metabolism issues, it is it is a very high percentage of those people who, by the end of the protocol, they're feeling either significantly better or just don't even have symptoms anymore. And then, of course, there's the issue of you got to get people off of the low sulfur diet because it's very important that people not stay on that diet. Mm. Um, so that's like the next phase. That's my next book, maybe or something. Um, but yeah, that's the that's how it plays out. So the so just to just take a step back, because there's a lot there I would like to go into, but we were talking about, you know, hydrogen sulfide. It, would that be SIBO then? Uh, yeah, yes. So there are three kinds of SIBO. There's hydrogen positive, there's methane positive, and then now with the new TrioSmart test, there's hydrogen sulfide positive. And so in the prior to TrioSmart, if you tested, if you had the bloating and the uh, and all you check all the SIBO boxes, but you were negative on the test, by default, you were called the hydrogen sulfide SIBO case. It was like that was the trash can, you know, that was the that that got everybody else that, that didn't test positive. And I had so I had lots of patients come in with that situation that they were negative on the other tests and we do the sulfur thing and they usually have some degree of improvement. Um, then the, the TrioSmart test came out by Dr. Pimentel uh, 
And I, you know, I am still, I'm undecided about the value of that test. Uh, I have certainly had now, you know, it hasn't been out that long, maybe four or five patients. I'm not ordering the test personally. I think I did once for somebody who just really wanted me to order it, um, but it doesn't, it wouldn't impact my clinical, you know, development of a treatment plan. So I don't order a test that it doesn't change my plan. Mm-hmm. But I have had a number of patients who have come in with their TrioSmart test. They show to be high on, uh, on hydrogen sulfide and um, it's possible to go through the process and get somebody with lower symptoms, but nothing changes about their test result. Or an even more dramatic case was a patient just very recently who came in very high on, on I think was on all three. This was prior to my working with them. They went through a antibiotic, like intensive protocol. All three of them came down into the normal level. And so that was their report to me that, yeah, it all came normal. And I followed up to say, did you feel better? And he said, oh, no, there was no change in how he was feeling. That was the problem. That's why he was coming to me. Um, And so I I don't have total confidence that there's a tight correlation between what those tests are saying and how patients are feeling. And... I, I think the risk is that we treat to a test result and not just treat the person that's sitting in front of us. Um, and so I, I don't order the test often. If somebody came in with a test that they had done and it said that they were very low on hydrogen sulfide, but they had all the symptoms of sulfur issues, mm-hmm. of course, I would just still do the protocol. I wouldn't not do it because the test said they don't have hydrogen sulfide. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So with the hydrogen sulfide component, the way that I'm visualizing it in my head is that it's like you, if you take in sulfur, your body, there's like a cycle, right? And then it goes from like sulfur metabolized into hydrogen sulfide into sulfate. And is it like your, the cycle gets stuck in the sulfide and doesn't make it all the way to the sulfate. So you're having like these problems where you're, you're almost looking like you're sulfur deficient and those manifest as these sulfur issues. Yeah. So, so basically down the sulfation pathway, your body is, you know, through either CBS or CTH or CDO through these various enzymes that are taking these, these building blocks, sulfury building blocks and generating taurine and glutathione and uh, ultimately pyruvate and, you know, these other byproducts that we need to be generating. And each time the enzyme, you know, gets from one, you know, you go from one step to the next step, that enzyme in making that step happen spits off a hydrogen sulfide. Mm. Or sometimes it spits off a sulfide, SO3. And so with those, so your body needs to detoxify SO3. It's not a good thing to have around. It will be symptomatic. As many people know, they don't do well with sulfites. There's only one way in the body to get from SO3 to SO4. And that's a single enzyme can do that. As far as I've been able to find, nothing else can do it but that one enzyme, which is the sulfite oxidase, SUOX. And so whenever SO3 is around, you better have that enzyme because you need to get that converted over to sulfate. With hydrogen sulfide, it's a little bit of a different thing because unlike sulfite, which has no biological, I mean, as far as I'm aware, nobody's really found a reason for sulfite biologically. There's one mouse study that found maybe it does some immune stuff, but but really it's up to no good. Um, That's not true for hydrogen sulfide. We are constantly needing a low level of hydrogen sulfide. That's why we have so many enzymes that are that are making it just as a matter of course. There's always this flow of hydrogen sulfide into our system because it is a gazotransmitter, meaning that it works like a neurotransmitter, but it's a gas. So, so we take foods in and, and sulfur and bacteria and hydrogen sulfide gets made. And that then diffuses into the bloodstream. It just passes like a ghost into the bloodstream. 
circulates all around, does all kinds of positive things. It regulates our blood pressure and our heart rate. It helps with, with concentration and memory formation. Um, it helps to regulate the autonomic nervous system balance. It has many, many beneficial effects. Uh, and it, at low levels, it is anti-inflammatory. But it is this, it does, in almost every respect, it is, has a biphasic response in that whatever it does at a low level, it does the opposite at a high level. Mm -hmm. And so if it helps memory formation at low levels, at high levels, it tends to cause brain fog. Or if it calms the autonomic nervous system at high levels, it creates more problems, creates more sympathetic dominance. Um, low levels, anti-inflammatory, high levels, very inflammatory in the gut, especially all the inflammatory bowel diseases, you know, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, even IBS, they all have high levels of hydrogen sulfide being produced locally at the tissue level that is causing just kind of chronic inflammatory response, mm -hmm. which is why one of the most dramatic responses that we see is when people have those conditions, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, it has been shocking, not everybody. It's not like a cure for everyone, but there have been some cases of, of decades of inflammatory bowel disease that have resolved in a very short period of time. Once we get people supported, you know, on a diet that is more appropriate without, with low sulfur and also with the nutrient support and all that, that those, those conditions can resolve quite quickly. So um, yeah, so there's this constant production of hydrogen sulfide that is important. Something to keep in mind is that many of these sulfur-dense sulfur foods are, you know, traditionally or historically have been seasonal aspects of our diet. So, you know, basically all the vegetables are, have a seasonality to them. And now, you know, year round, we can stuff, you know, kale and and into our smoothies and we can be eating all, all of the cruciferous year round. There, there is no break that our body gets. So, um, you know, one, one aspect of this can be that, well, you get exposed to glyphosate or something and that locks up the sulfur metabolism system. And another aspect can just be overwhelm. I mean, there are some people taking that are in their normal daily diet eating an enormous amount of sulfur compounds in both in their diet and in their supplementation. Like they're just taking, you know, taking lipoic acid and taking NAC and taking glutathione and taking like their MSM, all these different supplements that they're taking on a daily basis on top of all these other things. And I think it just overwhelms the system. It just can't move through these enzymatic processes fast enough. Wow. I mean, that just blows the lid on so many healthy diet and healthy protocols and, and, and like nootropic protocols that I see floating around the internet. I mean, NAC, let's start there, right? I, you know, I've never heard one person say a bad thing about NAC. Alpha lipoic acid, you know, it can get a little weird because it's mercury detoxification and it can get a, you know, you start mobilizing mercury. So I think people are a little more safe with that, but, uh, glutathione, you know, when COVID was, was popping about a year ago, everyone was rushing out to get glutathione. Um, yeah. MSM started to get really big. And I seen, I've seen many, you know, protocols, people going in these nootropic, you know, chat rooms, Hey, I'm taking 900 milligrams of NAC. I'm taking 200 of alpha lipoic acid. I mean, all in the same day, like you said, and yeah. then they're mm -hmm. popping the green smoothies and then they're throwing down some eggs with some Brussels sprouts. <laughs> and I mean, it, and then yeah. they're like, why do I still have anxiety? I don't get it. And I mean, it's, there are people that I think just because of how they're built and how they've maintained detoxification, whatever, there are some people who do fine on that. But I have absolutely had patients who come in feeling hellish and they have for a long time and they don't understand it. It's because they're detoxing and they've been on this detox protocol for three years, taking this pile of sulfur supplements and they're still, they believe all their symptoms are detoxification symptoms. And I say, stop taking all that. Don't take this stuff anymore. 
And it has been, it's shocking how many people feel dramatically better when they just stop taking all these detox things, because essentially detox things are sulfur. Like you mentioned earlier, sulfur is intimately involved in phase two detoxification in the liver, um, both through glutathione and also also through sulfation. Uh, you know, you, you got to have, you know, sulfur is, um, is so, so, so involved in detox, not only in the physiological thing, and then also in, you know, look up things that bind heavy metals, it's sulfur. Like that's what binds heavy metals. And so, um, yeah, people that are, that are doing lots of detox therapies uh, are generally doing a lot of sulfur compounds and it becomes not so clear whether or not their symptoms as a result are because they're detoxing or if they're actually essentially toxifying themselves with sulfur compounds. And so often we get people doing some other kinds of supportive therapies to help their body kind of deal better with sulfur compounds. And, you know, people can handle detox. You know, they're able to do detox therapies much easier. And when you say so, sulfur compounds, you mean like SO3, for instance, that's not being turned into SO4? When I say other compound, what was I, what context did I well, say? You were saying like when, when people take in, you know, these sulfur rich supplements and sulfur rich foods because they think they're detoxing, but they're actually oh, yeah. retoxing with sulfur compounds. I, I get that you mean like with the sulfur rich nutrients, but in the body biochemically, is that turning into SO3, but yeah. it's not getting to the SO4, which is the usable form of it? Yeah. So with any of these sulfur compounds, it's not like they're all, it, it's not that all sulfur that we take in is ultimately got to get to sulfate. Some of it's going to make methionine and to make cysteine and to do, you know, there are lots of other utilizations for sulfur. It's just that there is a, a proportion of it that is going to start is going to go down those pathways. And so the more of those compounds that are coming in, the greater the fraction of them going down, ultimately they're gonna get made into hydrogen sulfide and sulfite because that's just part of the pathways that sulfur goes through in order to get to, in order to get to sulfate. And so, um, so it's, just, it's just a quantity issue of how much is coming in and how how then efficiently can the body move it, make sure it, you know, nothing to see here, just keep going. So, because if it, if it, if there's a weak link in the chain of getting to those final products, then it's going to become symptomatic. And what are the common symptoms that you would see in someone like this? You had mentioned ulcerative colitis, the gut issues, but are there other uh, symptoms you see, skin issues, mood issues, um, what, what do you see, you know, clinically in your practice? Yeah, all of that. Um, so definitely skin dermatitis, you know, any itchy, you know, people that get dermatitis around their eyes or mouth or nose, um, or even any kind of skin stuff and it not necessarily just dermatitis, other kinds of skin issues, and even just itchiness, even if there's not a physical anything, but often people just feel itchy, um, and also heat symptoms. So night sweats, hot flashes, um, those can dramatically resolve with a low sulfur protocol, which that was a really surprising finding early on when we started doing it with some women who were having crazy amount of hot flashes. Um, so yes, skin issues, gut issues, uh, you mentioned anxiety, and even panic for some people if they have too much of too much exposure. Um, let's see what it's on the cover of my book. What is it? Let's see. Um, oh yeah, migraines. Actually, that's um, headaches and migraines are a pretty big deal, and those seem to be really strongly correlated with garlic in particular mm. for reasons that are mis mystery to me. But um, yeah, so. Um, Let's see, insomnia and fatigue can be a part of the picture. Brain fog is a big deal, lots of brain fog. Um, 
Yeah, so that's kind of, and then there, you know, the questions just like, um, I always ask people, how do you do with alcohol? And I'm, I don't care how much people are drinking per se. I just want to know if some people, I mean, there are many people who will say, oh, can't touch it. If I have even the two drinks, I'm going to have a headache. Um, or I feel the next day like I had five times more than I actually did. So those are important to know because there's a, there's a significant connection between alcohol and its detoxification and sulfur and its metabolism. So when people have alcohol issues, it's very common that it confirms that sulfur, if it was looking like maybe a sulfur thing, that's a, a confirmatory. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, I always ask about uh, sulfur drugs, if any of the sulfur containing drug, if they've ever been told or they know that they are reactive to sulfur drugs, um, that's another kind of a confirmatory thing. Um, and what, what would those drugs be? You know, I should have a I should have that list right off the top of my head. It's a whole class of sulfazalamide, and there's this whole class of sulfur-containing drugs. Um, yeah, if, if you Google it, you'll come up with a list. Gotcha. Um, I, I never prescribe that stuff anyway, so I don't really think about. It. Gotcha. And what what are the um like the, the, we talked about cruciferous vegetables, but, um, you know, I'm thinking like eggs, like what are some real triggering foods for people that, that have these sort of sensitivities? Yeah, there's kind of, um, so there, when we have people go through the process and really it's, I just send people to Maria and she has written the guide that we're utilizing with all the patients, but there are, there are a list of about, I think, seven or eight primary foods uh, that have to be avoided. And those foods are going to be, in the end, reintroduced one by one to see if there is a reaction to those to any one of them in particular. And that reaction is going to show up in within it, sometimes within minutes, but certainly within like 24 to 48 hours. So there's that list of the usual suspects when it comes to acute reactivity. And then there is this other larger pile of foods that just get moved out of the diet to lower the overall sulfur intake, because keeping in mind that there's just a certain capacity that we have to metabolize sulfur. And in order to get things unlocked, you need to, you know, it's like, um, so, you know, when you flood a lawnmower and you start it and it, it just sputters and sputters, produces all that thick smoke and it can't really get on top of the cycle until finally it catches and it can run efficiently. I think that's the image that I have with people who are just c- continuing to take in too much sulfur. They just, it's like they flooded the engine and you have to just cut off the intake for a while to let it get on top of itself. And then you can bring it back in. You can bring you know, foods back in later. But so the the diet is generally lowering the total volume while at the same time excluding, you know, the dirty dozen, it's not actually a dozen, but, um, and those are, you know, garlic and onion and eggs, kale, broccoli, cauliflower, uh, asparagus, Brussels sprout. Those are the main reactive foods, the ones that, you know, when you individually bring them in and at the top of the list is garlic. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, right underneath garlic would be kale and eggs are the, you know, probably the most commonly reactive. Um, So we get them bringing each of the, on that list in, they get brought in every other day, generally, maybe a little slower than that, depending on the situation. Um, And just making note of, what what happens symptomatically with each one upon bringing it back in. And then once those are brought back in, then we want to make sure people start, you know, in a, maybe in a lower um, volume way than they were before, but we need to get them now bringing in some of the other foods on a regular basis, because it's very important that people not stay on restrictive diets for too long. Um, it's tempting to do because many people find that, you know, with their symptoms, they're in bad symptoms and they, oh, if I just don't eat 
this class of food, I feel a little better. And, oh, if I don't eat this class of food, I feel a little better. And then eventually, you know, they're coming in and they're on low FODMAP and they're eating low sulfur and they're eating, you know, anti-inflammatory and they're eating, you know, all these overlapping restrictive diets so that they've got like four foods that they really eat on a consistent basis. And that's a nightmare because the, the diversity of the gut bugs are going to drop dramatically with the diet that narrow. And once that diversity in the gut happens, it becomes very, very challenging to then ever reintroduce food because you don't have the machinery in there. You got to have mm-hmm. diverse gut to, to metabolize a wide variety of food. So, so the key is um, to utilize the, the low sulfur dietary protocol in a very focused way. It's like a prescription that lasts for a certain period of time, but it can't you got to figure out how to get off of that diet. Now, it very well may be that there are going to be a few sulfur foods that are never going to come back in, or they might not for a long time. Um, But the large majority, like I, I make it really clear that I don't want, I don't want people excluding any particular food just because they think they might react to it. If, I mean, of course, I'm not talking about donuts, but I'm, but in, you know, I don't want people avoiding, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't want them avoiding uh, romaine lettuce just because, well, it seems like it's in the category of foods that have been problematic for me. That's not a good thing. You need to test it and find out. And if it actually is, if you're actually reactive to romaine lettuce, first of all, you got to figure out why in the world would that be? Um, but then there's a justification for leaving it out. But I don't, I really strongly encourage people not to leave out any food that they don't know that they're reactive to. Wow. That's yeah. Because you, with these foods too, you also run into this issue of like organic and not organic because you were talking earlier about glyphosate and it's, you know, it's so much of our food supply is, tainted with glyphosate. And it almost sounds like glyphosate when you're talking about, well, why would you be sensitive to something like romaine lettuce? Do you think maybe it's, uh, it has something to do with glyphosate? Like there's been excessive glyphosate exposure, or maybe like, um, you know, one thing I'm finding out a lot about is, uh, antibiotic exposure, you know, people, people have wiped out all their good gut bugs. And then it's almost like their, their gut has been made over many times over and it's been refilled with, you know, the standard American diet. And now they just, every food is a sensitivity, but then every food is necessary. And, you know, when you say like, well, why would you be reacting to romaine lettuce? Well, because I just don't have the the gut bacteria to deal with that because of all of these other things going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, I, you know, regarding glyphosate in particular, I really think we have no we have no idea how wide ranging the underlying effects are of that exposure that we all have. We, you know, all, those of us eating as close to totally organic as possible, st- we still have glyphosate. It's still there because you can't get away from it. Um, and the it, glyphosate impacts things at such a fundamental level. It's like, you know, if you think about biochemical pathways, you know, you can have, you, your impact can be toward the end of the pathway, but if your impact is at the beginning of the pathway, it's going to have substantially more damage because many pathways start and then branch out into other, you know, you can end up with multiple things from a common pathway. So glyphosate is so fundamental in where it comes into play by, you know, by chelating minerals. So zinc and iron and molybdenum and, you know, it, it binds these things and takes them out of circulation. Well, that, I mean, if you, if you chelate iron, I mean, all of your of your phase one detox enzymes, CYP450 enzymes, they're all heme enzymes. They all require iron in their core. So if you bind up iron, then you're impacting your entire range of phase one detox. And that's just one little, that's just one thing. I mean, there's so many other consequences of binding iron that, oh, well, you can't, you know, your thyroid hormone, you can't activate 
you can't get T4 or T3 with that iron, or you get, there are all these, you know, ramifications that happen. Um, and so it becomes almost impossible to untangle all of those potential consequences. Um, but one of them is absolutely how devastating it is to many aspects of the management of sulfur and sulfate. And, you know, just as a footnote here, um, one of the profound roles of sulfate in the body is in how it organizes, structures water in the body. Uh, and that's not, you know, structured water in any kind of new agey sense, but the actual structure, you know, water takes on a structure when it comes up against an, a negatively charged surface and sulfate is supplying that negative charge throughout our body. And so a large portion of the water in our body is in a gelled form. It's a structure of water. And so impacting the uh, production of sulfate is ultimately going to contribute to the destructuring of water in the body, which can have enormous ramifications. I mean, the whole reason that an MRI works is that it can see where water is not structured. Tumors have unstructured water as within them. And so MRIs are just looking to where the water is not structured in the body. So um, anyway, that's just yet another way that things can you know, go bad when glyphosate comes in or other things come in and mess up sulfate, you know, sulfate metabolism. Oh man. The water thing is so crazy to me. I've been hearing so much about like deuterium depleted water and structured water. And, and this seems to be kind of growing, you know, in the zeitgeist a little bit more, which is, which is good for the reasons that you just laid out right there. Mm -hmm. um, but let's say, you know, you're somebody who can't get their hands on something like deuterium, uh, deuterium depleted water or like where do, where do you even begin with with an issue like that of i don't know is it is it more about like a water filter or you know but i guess it comes back to like eliminating glyphosate so like what are the best ways for somebody to eliminate these problematic factors from their life so there are certain bases that you have to cover you need um you gotta have sulfur metabolism that is functional and so you know, when people come in and they have 17 different interlocking things going on that all seem different, but obviously we know it's all part of the same package. I always start with sulfur, not always, but I pretty much will always start with sulfur because something about every complex case looks sulfury. And so I start there because I know if we don't get sulfur metabolism taken care of, nothing else is going to work the way it's supposed to. So I start with sulfur and try to get, make sure that, um, you know, I'm reasonably confident that they can produce the kind of compounds that they need to be producing. Um, you know, with the water, you know, that whole water structuring issue, there are so, there are these elements that come into play. Obviously, duh, hydration is enormously important. Um, and there are, there are different kinds of, you know, there are different ways that you can uh, impact water. And you can, in that impact, you're changing its properties, its physical properties. And this is, again, this is, you know, every year there's the International Conference on the Physics, Physics Chemistry and Biology of Water. It happens in Europe somewhere. It didn't this past year, of course, but... Um, and it is this, these basic scientists from around the world who all get together in some place in Europe and present just mind-boggling research. I mean, much of it is just quantum stuff that I can't really stay on top of, but much of it is not. It's really, it's really understandable, you know, the various abilities of water to, to um I mean, not only do its physical properties change with certain kinds of applications, but also the ability of water to absorb and even transmit information. Um, I mean, just, it's crazy. There's, um, the, there are archives of the Water Conference for people that want to go. I think it's waterconf.org is the webpage. And there are all past year, I think it's all available video that people can just watch if they're geeky and want to see what's being talked about there. But 
Um, the point is that there are various ways of impacting the physical properties of water. And there is research that suggests that those impacts have physiological consequences. So for instance, if you put, if you put water, just let it stand in a static magnetic field for a period of time, and then use that water to hydrate plants, they'll grow faster. Mm -hmm. It somehow hydrates the plant better to have been exposed to a static magnetic field for a period of time. Or there are other, you know, there are all kinds of now technologies out there that claim to do all kinds of things to water. Whether or not they do what they're claiming, I mean, you know, many of them have some kind of research or showing how it changes crystallization patterns or whatever to say that it does it. But there's certainly, um, I think there's a, a very interesting field that is now exploring this idea of we can modify water and essentially turn it into an information-based medicine that we are drinking our medicine. And that's actually a therapy that I'm using clinically. Um, then there are things like um, infrared, which is another very, very important aspect of, of the structuring of water. Now, so exposure to infrared light causes a dramatic thickening of that structure layer of water that is lining, all, that is on all of our cells and everything. So infrared is, is thickening the structure layer. And in doing so, it's essentially charging the battery that is, it's a battery made of water that we are, we are always a walking battery. And that battery effect is constantly in effect. We are utilizing that energy. Um, and so that is likely why we feel good when we're out in the sun and we get, I mean, it literally does recharge the, the battery of water that we have. So there are those kinds of things that I think are very important. Epsom salt baths, everybody's got to do Epsom salt baths. Um, Epsom salt baths is getting sulfate into our system. Now it's got magnet, you know, obviously there's magnesium and that's great. And people, you know, feel good with more magnesium usually. But the sulfate aspect of Epsom salt is I think crucial, especially for people that have these sulfur issues that are not making sulfate the way they should. So if they can get it through their skin so that it doesn't have to go and run into the bugs in their gut. Then it kind of bypasses the, the process whereby the hydrogen sulfide is getting made in excess. And I mean, it's crazy how many patients I've had who have dramatic improvement in their digestive symptoms just by doing Epsom salt baths. I mean, I'm putting a, a lot of Epsom salt per bath. It's not sure. like a little bit. That's real interesting. Yeah. So with uh, kind of going back to the, 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 the enzyme part of, because it, it seems like it all comes back to, to sulfur playing a major role in how your body and how all of your, you know, your cells, how everything kind of properly detoxifies and makes things work. But it seems like there, like what you were saying, like there can be a dysfunction, whether it's from glyphosate, environmental chemicals, unstructured water. Is there something we're born with too? Is there like a genetic component to this, like a SNP or something like that, that plays into like an enzyme dysfunction, making your body, allowing your body to properly utilize sulfur? Yeah, I mean, um, so there's, you know, I talk about this a bit in the in my book. There are, I mean, there's now obviously an industry, a giant industry around checking these SNPs and building whole treatment programs around SNPs. I think it's a great way to make a lot of money, um, but I'm I'm not totally convinced that that's a valid way of pursuing a treatment plan. I do think that SNP information can be helpful. I mean, it can inform, um, but I would, I mean, I just can't imagine looking at a genetic printout and knowing how to treat that patient. Um, that said, there are certainly a few SNPs that I think can be meaningful in trying to understand why this person has such dramatic reactions to sulfuric things and this person doesn't seem to have much at all. Um, for instance, that one enzyme, the sulfite oxidase enzyme, the one enzyme that can get SO3 to SO4, 
there are, it's rare that I see individuals with, with, with the most important SNPs in that enzyme. But when you see it, it is, I've never seen somebody with a SNP there who did not have very significant symptoms that are very sulfury kinds of symptoms. So, um, so I look at SNPs, uh, not for everybody. So I don't, it's not like a primary, but if somebody comes in, they've done 23andMe and yeah, here's the printout. Um, and I'll glance it over and see if anything like jumps out about it. Um, but it's not, SNPs don't, they're not a, a driver of how I'm thinking about treating somebody. Sure. W- would that be the, the CBS gene or the CBS SNP? Yeah, CBS. It's funny. I have, I have patients come in because there's the, this whole kind of discussion about these SNPs that goes on online, of course. Patients come in and tell me that they have, um, they, I mean, they say, I have the CBS mutation, which, I mean, it, it has taken on the status of a disease itself. Wow. And and I, I just don't think it's, I don't think it's accurate. I don't find that there's such a tight correlation between what those SNPs are doing and how somebody is feeling. Now, you know, if you see SNPs piling up on somebody so that they have, you know, they're homozygous on that particular 699 of CBS and maybe also on 320, and then they're also homozygous on on some CTH SNPs and then, you know, whatever, you know, you can get them piled up and so, okay, yeah, maybe we got something here. But if somebody is, has just like a heterozygous on that CBS 699, I'm not particularly interested by that. That is not, certainly not gonna inform how I'm putting together a treatment plan. Um, But I, from the patient perspective, I have many who think that if they have even heterozygous on 699, that it is, it is a major player in how they're feeling. And yeah. I just don't, I don't think that's true. Yeah. We've all consulted Dr. Google and uh, searched yeah. for snips and uh, that sort of thing. Certainly guilty yeah. of it right here. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, I did want to ask you just a couple more things um, as we kind of wind down here, especially concerning sulfur, um, body odor, is there a connection with like body odor and does that have anything to do with, with ammonia? I feel like I've, I've heard these, these kind of points put together, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. Well, I think, uh, I think, yes, I think they are connected. Um, I can't tell you exactly how they're connected in the sense that I'm not sure why some people manifest a sulfur issue through, I mean, I have had two patients over the years that I can recall who had almost a debilitating amount of sulfury smell that would come off of them. I, that's gotta be a genetic thing. I don't, I mean, I can't even, I don't know how to explain why, why some people would generate that amount of these, and it's not an ammonia smell that they have. These two had, it was very much a sulfur smell. Now there is, there are links between, between the production, you know, bodies producing ammonia and all of those sulfur pathways. And there are enzymes that are important to be looking at, you know, in, in OS3 and others that can help to do all the regulation in there. Um, NOS enzyme itself is a very, um, is a really, um, key, it's kind of a key enzyme. And in fact, this was the one first article of Stephanie's that I read where she laid out this theory, the NOS, um, which we know of as making nitric oxide, and that's its claim to fame in the process of, and it also detoxifies, it's in the ammonia detox thing. Um, but it also is producing, it's, it's playing a key role in the production of sulfate. It's actually making sulfur dioxide, SO2, which will then get oxidized to SO3, which will then get enzymatically converted to SO4. So it is ultimately helping to balance. And nitric oxide and sulfate are these two, uh, or nitrate and sulfate are these two very important 
um, regulators of blood viscosity. And so anyway, I'm going on a tangent about this because it's just, it, there is the, the, there is this close tie between ammonia and its detoxification and also with, um, with sulfate. So in getting to your initial question about body odor and how that manifests for some, but not all, I really don't know how to explain why it manifests for some and not others. And I, you know, other than some weird genetics that are happening behind the scenes. Yeah. So it's a mystery. Yeah. Well, that's interesting too. So like would, would supplementing or have you ever, uh, prescribe somebody supplement with something like nitric oxide if they, if they do have sulfur issues? Mm -hmm. I have before. Yeah. We, I mean, we carry one. Um, yeah, I, you know, there's a, I mean, nitric oxide, I think can be hugely valuable. You have to, you know, be cautious in some ways with it because it can, um, feed into these, these certain kinds of, you know, the, um, reactive nitrate or reactive nitrogen species, uh, but yes, nitric oxide can certainly be one of those that might come into play if, you know, if genetically, so homozygous on NOS3 in a couple of different spots, we know that that will substantially slow down that enzyme, which is going to back up, you know, not only back up the ammonia detoxification, but it also is going to slow down dopamine production. And so there are ways you got to support all of that. Got you. Now, jumping into like the supplement stuff, right? So we've already, we've already said, if you got these issues, stay away from the NAC, stay away from the ALA, stay away from MSM. Um, are there any supplements that you think are good? So assuming you're going to, you're going to try a low sulfur diet, you're going to go down that road. You're going to start eliminating high sulfur foods for not too long. Um, but you start to kind of identify like, okay, I do have a lot of, you know, and look, if you're doing this paleo keto thing, even like the plant-based thing, you probably have a lot of cruciferous vegetables and these sorts of things in your life. Um, mm -hmm. But then are there supplements, like I've heard molybdenum, molybdenum um, is a good thing to supplement. Um, mm -hmm. Are there any other supplements that are good or, or minerals or vitamins that are good to support, um, to support sulfate production or sulfur sensitivities? Sure. So, yeah. And also just to clarify, it's not that I think nobody should be taking lipoic acid or MSM or, you know, certainly not glutathione. I mean, I'm prescribing those for for various people for different things. They're super important. Um, they, it's simply, they become problematic in the context of these sulfur issues. And for people initially going through the process, we, we get those out so that that's not throwing fuel on a fire. Um, definitely there are, you know, nutrients that are very important. You mentioned molybdenum and that's one that every time I do one of these podcasts, there's a, the product that we use, um, Biotics is a company that makes it and it's called Mozyme Forte. And it really, I, there's something unique about the way they put that together. It's an organic, it's a food-based enzyme and we always have people chew it up. And um, that alone has actually done quite dramatic things for some people. And, you know, we'll, you know, I do this, dose escalation, chew up one twice a day, and then maybe go to two and three twice a day even. Uh, and some people feel dramatically better with that much support. Now, really what that's doing is facilitating that SUOX enzyme. It's getting SO3 converted to SO4. Mm -hmm. So it's not all that surprising that people might feel significantly better by having those higher doses. Um, and there are, you know, there's a number of other kinds of supplements that can come into play and many of them are not directly related to sulfur but they have to do with ultimately you got to get the gut rebalanced i'm using a lot of butyrate um with patients uh i use uh there's a that humic acid product called ion biome developed by dr zach bush um i find that to be very valuable in restoring the integrity of the gut um what else i use Hydroxy, hydroxocobalamin as the form of B12, because that one happens to help to, um, it will help 
to get sulfur compounds in the blood converted over to sulfate ultimately. Um, and what else? I might use uh, Panax ginseng or I might use flaxseed oil powder um, because of their impact on like CBS or other enzymes that are producing lots of compounds. So it really just kind of depends on what the situation is. And again, in, in the book, for people who want to know the details, I go through a lot of the different enzymes or a lot of different supplements that I use on a pretty regular basis. That's great. Yeah, we'll link to the book um, in our show notes here when we publish all this. And uh, I definitely encourage people to read it. I haven't read it myself, um, but it's on my list. And I recommend, what? I know, can you believe it? Well, it's the garlic thing. I'm like, this guy's telling me not to eat garlic. I, I'm lost. <laughs> I have to talk to him now to figure this out. I'm going to buy four, four copies. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, we'll link to that. We'll obviously our huge following will put you on the Amazon bestsellers list. No doubt about it. Awesome. <laughs> um, so cool. Yeah. I, I, I actually um, use Mozyme Forte. I just got it in the mail. So I'm excited to. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And uh -huh. I love little, I love little tips like that where it's like, you want to take it, but you want to chew it up. And um, you know, because some of these yeah. things, they don't break down in the gut. So yeah, well. it doesn't, it tastes pretty earthy, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, you got a man up or a woman up or whatever yeah, you do, you know, right. <laughs> take that yeah. thing down. Um, well, Dr. Nye, this has been a, a very enlightening conversation. Uh, I love having these, these chats about, uh, about these topics that are, that are, I don't want to say fringe, but they're really, in my opinion, like on the frontier of health. Like we're not talking about it now because everyone's just discovering the keto diet. We're talking about probiotics, but you know, eventually what I notice is with all of these diets, they hit a dead end. And a lot of times I think it's because of what you're talking about right now, which is, you know, sulfur. And I've had other conversations kind of along these same lines. So um, I certainly appreciate your time. Just before we cut out here, is there anything you know, that you can tell the holistic nootropics audience about, you know, your view on what really optimal health or, or mind body health is. Oh, what it is. You mean, how do you get there? How do you get there? How, how do you, how do you get to like, in your opinion, what is like, if you, if you had a billboard somewhere or a tattoo, you're going to tattoo it right on your forehead and you wanted everybody to see how I got you, a lot of branding room. that's what I'm talking about. So, so use as much space <laughs> as you want. Uh, how, what, what is the best way to optimize the mind body connection? All right. Here's what I'd say. Uh, and I'm not sure this is a direct answer to your question, but one of the most important findings that I have come into is the absolutely essential uh, component of the autonomic nervous system and the balance that has to be in place, that it is, it is simply not possible, even with the best treatment plan, working with the smartest doctors and the best treatment plans. I've had so many patients who've been to like the rockstar doctors and have done all, everything right. Like I can't look at anything and say that wasn't a good plan, but they, their body can't get into balance, but it is essentially without exception that when you explore their own personal disposition, their autonomic nervous system is whacked meaning that there's all kinds of like vagus nerve dysregulation that, I mean, the vagus nerve is, it's running the whole show. You can't possibly get things into balance if the vagus nerve is misfiring or, or overtone or undertone or whatever. And so there's this whole parallel track of therapies that I think are, are essential for anybody who wants to achieve like optimal health, if they have, if they have a suggestion of autonomic imbalance, which is like anybody with stress or, you know, a little excess anxiety or whatever. Um, I think once those kinds of therapies get incorporated, it absolutely transforms the picture. And what therapies and would those be? A whole other, I know it would be a whole other podcast. Sure, sure, sure. But if you just name off a couple, yeah. just so people so have an idea. The one that I have, you know, Maria has been gone through the 
certification process for a process called SSP or safe mm -hmm. and sound protocol, which is just a, um, it uses earphones and just audio files to help access the, you know, balance the autonomic nervous system. There's another system called DNRS, Dynamic Neural Retraining System, I think, mm -hmm. which, you, you know, people download. I've had people with both of these. I've seen it happen. People, their lives transform in their health by incorporating those therapies into the rest of their plan. So, wow. yeah. Well, yeah. Or also are... one that is much more known and accessible is, are the tapping therapies, EFT mm -hmm. or TFT. I mean, it seems crazy, bizarre. Why would that work? But again, I have seen, I've seen it do pretty substantial things. So yeah, I think it's all working in that same autonomic way. Yeah. Well, here at Holistic Nootropics, we are all about the autonomic nervous system. Um, right. And the tapping thing, it's, it's so powerful. I'm like you, I can't explain it, but I know I do it, you know, every night before I fall asleep, it just puts me in like a very calm place. Mm -hmm. If I'm feeling stressed out, there's just something about those points tapping it away. And if yeah. I'm really frustrated, I'll just start tapping almost like a, a hole in my head, but like <laughs> uh, it, it works. I can't explain it. I don't know. Yeah. That's some great yeah. stuff. Yep. And it's all, free. it's all just available. You can, you know, well, tapping is DNRS. You got to buy their material SSP. You got to work with a practitioner um, like Maria. Um, but yeah, there it's all, you know, those things add such a richness to whatever treatment plan. Cause we get so focused on the physiology, but you know, the, the neurology behind imbalances is kind of this elephant in the living room for a lot of people. Yeah. And we're all energy. So, I mean, yeah. it's cool. I dig it. Well, Dr. Knight, thanks so much for your time. This has been, you know, a great podcast. I certainly awesome. appreciate it. We'll link to all of your, your books, your practice. Um, can people work with you? If, uh, do you work with people remotely? If they, if oh, they yeah, start? absolutely. All, all over. Yep. Awesome. So we'll link to, yep. we'll link to all of your emails and your website and everything in the show Excellent. notes, folks. Dr. Nye is one of the best in the country. So definitely look him up when you, uh, when you feel the need to, um, otherwise thanks so much for listening and watching. We'll catch you on the next podcast, everybody. Peace. Thanks for listening. For more brain-boosting info, in-depth articles, and show notes, check out holisticnootropics.com.